All right, let's begin lesson four with this quote that I really, really love from your suggested reading, uh, your Catholic introduction to the Bible, the Old Testament here, right here on the top of your notes, I reproduced it for you. I think this is a great way to look at chapter three because chapter three really shouldn't be separated from one and two. It's this great plot, this great drama of our origins, the origin of creation, uh, God's desire for us to be with him on the covenant, uh, through the covenant on the Sabbath day, the Sabbath rest but then how that's destroyed. So we've got the origin of sin and dis origin of disobedience. So we really need to see one through three together. Okay, so let's look at this quote. It says, the gen a general theme of chapter three is the inversion of norms. Everything is turned upside down. And this, the theme, the inversion of norms, you find this all over the scripture. Like what you expect isn't what happens. You know, the mighty are brought down and the lowly are brought up. That's all called the inversion of norms here. Well, it goes on. In the divinely established order of Genesis 1 through 2, Adam, God's vice regent, is to obey God. He is to communicate God's will to Eve, his spouse, and together they are to rule over the animals. That's 1 through 2. That's the way it's designed. That's how it should work. But then it goes on. And in the course of Genesis 3, the animal, the serpent, is going to rule over Eve. Eve is going to communicate the animal's will to Adam, and together all three will defy God, end quote. So it's the inversion of norms. Everything's turned upside down. And that's what we're going to see over the course of this lesson, how this takes place and really how God's design for uh, and, and really his will for Adam and Eve to be his children is completely thwarted and everything is broken. All right. So as before we go to chapter three, uh, because it all has to do with the discretion, um, the transgression, not discretion, the transgression of God's will. In chapter two, verse 16 through 17, if you remember, we have the command. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat everything else, but you can't eat of that one tree, okay? So this is really important to keep in mind as we go into chapter 3, why God gives this command. God gives this command because, as we saw with all the discussion on what it means to be in the image and likeness of God, Adam is a free moral agent. As a free moral agent, he must choose. Is he going to love God? Is he going to obey God? Is he going to serve God? Um, as you know, God said, you must till and keep the garden. We looked at those words. Is he going to embrace all of that? Or is he going to rebel? Is he going to fight against God? So love must be free if it's going to be love at all. This is a profound truth. In order for love to be real and true, it's got to be free because we're not robots. We're not brute beasts with just following our instincts, you know, where someone's in heat. Well, you got to take care of that. You know, we have choice. We have free will. We have an intellect and a free will. Uh, we're rational, spiritual creatures that to, to know the truth, to know the true, the good and the beautiful, and then to will it, to love it. So this is true, like in marriage, a good example that is often used is that in any marriage or any friendship for that matter, but in marriage, you know, the spouses have to come to this relationship freely. There can be no coercion, no forcing of any kind, where a man says to his wife, I freely choose you over every other good looking, rich, talented woman on the face of the planet. I choose you until death do us part. That is a choice that he makes at the moment of marriage, declaring the vows, and at every day of the married life. And you better believe this happens all the time in marriage. You know, there are other rich, beautiful, uh, talented uh, women or men out there, uh, but yet still, nevertheless, you choose to love your spouse. Okay, that's what makes love free. That's what makes it beautiful. So this tree of knowledge of good and evil is there in the garden because Adam must choose. All right. The other thing to keep in mind is that the consequences of eating of this fruit, as we discussed last lesson, is that 
if you eat of it, you will die the death. Okay, now, as I said, the, the word die is mentioned twice. You're going to die, die. You're going to die the death. Some translators have it. That's important because it points out that this the curses of this covenant disobedience, right? The tree of life is the basically symbolizes the blessings for obedience of this covenant. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the curses. If you take of that tree, you're going to die the death. You're going to die, die. So that means spiritually and physically, you are going to die. All right. So with that in mind, let's read now chapters three. So chapter three, verses one through seven, let's do. Uh, and then we're going to unpack it here following the notes. All right. Chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. All right, that's verses 1 through 3 here. We have this section, it's Roman numeral 2 in your notes, Satan instigating Adam and Eve, tempting them to sin and to rebel against God. Now, there's always the question here. Okay, you've got the story of the serpent and the tree and the fruit. How much of that is literal? Did it, was it a literal tree, a literal fruit? Did Satan really take the form of a serpent, kind of I don't know, possess it or appear at least in, a, in the form of a serpent? And that very well may be the case. However, it doesn't, strictly speaking, have to be. So in your notes here, I have Catechism 390 for you, where the church says, the account of the fall in Genesis 3 uses figurative language. Okay, these are the literary tools we talk so much about. Figurative language, but affirms a primeval event, a deed that took place in the beginning of the history of man. Revelation gives us the certainty of faith that the whole of human history is marked by the original fault freely committed by our first parents. Okay, so a couple of quick things before we unpack these verses. There is figurative language, figurative imagery used, being used here, literary tools to describe an actual historical event. The church does maintain as revealed truth that God created everything. He created our first parents, Adam and Eve, in a state of original justice and holiness, and that there is this command that was transgressed, and now humanity is in a state of spiritual exile. We'll talk about all of that throughout this lesson, or more in this lesson. This is revealed to us. We, we weren't there. We don't know. This was however many years ago it was, but God reveals the truths of the story to us using these figurative languages, figurative imagery, okay? So was it a real spirit? Was it a real serpent, excuse me, a, a real fruit, a real tree? You can absolutely believe that 100%. That's fine. But you could also say this is figurative and symbolic for the historical truth that there was a transgression of a command that brought in um, sin and suffering and death, okay? All right, that being said here, let's look at the serpent. A lot to say about the serpent. The Hebrew word is nachash. You can see it right here in your notes. It's also in the commentaries I suggested for you. And it has a wide range of meaning throughout the Old Testament. It could mean snake or serpent. It could mean a leviathan sea monster. It could mean great dragon. It could mean all of these different things. Really, nachash, in so many instances, really just becomes, especially here, this embodiment of pure evil, of pure malice, of pure rebellion against God, sin in every way. This is really what 
the devil is. It's this pure embodiment of sin and of evil and fighting against God. Now, it doesn't have to, Nahash could mean a serpent or a snake, but it could be something a little bit more menacing than this. For example, if you go to Revelation chapter 9, 12, sorry, chapter 12, verse 9, uh, you have this description of the great dragon that was thrown down. He is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him, a third of the host of the angels. A lot to say about that, but for right now, um, the ancient serpent is now being described here as a great dragon, okay? He is the devil. He is the Satan. That's often actually interesting in scripture. Satan is known as the Satan because Satan means the accuser. He is the one who accuses us. It's really devious, okay? He tempts us to sin, we sin, then he accuses us about how bad and how evil we are and how unworthy of God's love is. The more things change, the more they stay the same. It's just, this is his tactics. But he is the Satan, he is the accuser. Okay, so um, the ancient serpent here in Genesis is being described and depicted in Revelation as this great dragon here that loses this sort of spiritual cosmic battle to uh, St. Michael. So he is the deceiver of the whole world. John chapter 8, 44, Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. He has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So pretty, pretty ugly descriptions of who this being, this angelic being who's fallen from grace is. He's this just menacing dragon. Uh, he is the accuser, deceiver of the whole world, a murderer from the beginning, a liar and the father of lies. He is absolutely horrific. And all he desires is the destruction of humankind. And this is why he's going to tempt Adam and Eve. But why would he do this? What is he, what's the motivation? Why does he care? Like, here's Adam and Eve. They're just doing their thing in the garden created by God and everything's harmony, shalom, like we talked about. Everything's good. Why do you got to go destroy it? Why do you got to be a big party pooper, right? Well, he's motivated out of envy. You know, the scriptures tell us in Wisdom chapter 224, it's through the devil's envy that death entered into the world. Now, what is he envious about? He's not envious about anything in humanity. He doesn't envy Adam and Eve in any way, shape, or form because Adam and Eve are inferior to him. Satan is the, his original name was Lucifer, the angel of light. He's the greatest of the angels, some say. And so he has nothing to envy about humanity because humanity is a material and spiritual being inferior to him. He envies God. He wants to be like God. Now, there's a lot to say about the whole story about Satan's fall, but basically he refuses to serve. He refuses to obey God's command that the angelic host would serve humanity in some form. He refuses to serve and he wants to be like God. He is envious of who God is. He wants to be like God apart from God. This is the envy that, that the scriptures is talking about, as is clarified in scripture and in tradition uh, throughout the fathers. So, he wants to be like God, and then he, because he can't be like God, he wants to destroy anything that is like God, and that includes man. Human beings were created in the image and likeness of God, and he wants to destroy it, okay? Because he's a murderer from the beginning, he's a liar from the beginning, a deceiver of the whole world, as we saw in Revelation 12 and John chapter 8. Okay, so a couple, a couple things here. So he wants to destroy, he just, the motivation is out of envy, envy of God, fine, destroy us because we're in God's image and likeness, could. But this transition, I think, is really, really important on that point because in, at the end of chapter 2, verse 25, it says that the man and the wife were both naked and were unashamed. The Hebrew word for that is here in your notes is arumim. Arumim, he, they are naked 
and they're unashamed. But then it says in verse 1, the serpent was more subtle than any other creature, and that Hebrew word is arum. You can see the, um, the subtlety here, the play on words going on. Arum, arumim. And that's important because Adam and Eve, they're naked and they're unashamed. They are in right relationship with God. Friendship and harmony, original justice, original holiness, everything is going right. But that's where they're vulnerable. Remember, God said to Adam, you must shamar, you must guard the garden. They're vulnerable in their relationship with each other and with God. And so Satan's arum, his subtlety, his craftiness, is going to attack them where they're vulnerable in their nakedness, okay? Uh, and their relationship with God, their purity, their holiness, um, their, again, uh, innocence. That's what he is going to attack. So it's not just a segue from, at least in the Hebrew, you can hear it really well, from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. It's really showing that Satan is going to attack them where they're weakest, but also what is most valuable, what is most um, yeah, what is most precious to them, which is this innocence and this purity, this harmony between themselves and between God and all of creation. So how is he going to do this? What's his strategy? Well, as we're going to see here and unpack in a moment, he is going to make them believe that God is not a loving father at all. In fact, he is a tyrant and he is imposing arbitrary laws to hold back the very best from them. That God doesn't want them to have everything. That God wants to have something for himself. And he's going to restrict it from them. He's a tyrant. He's not a loving father. He didn't create them in love. He really created them for some sort of subservient way. And anyway, as you could, as you could see it there. So, in other words, you need to be like God. You need to have what he is trying to hold back from you. You could be like God. You can have control like God does without God. And that's so interesting because this is what Satan wanted. Satan wanted to be like God. Out of his own envy, he wanted to be like God. And this is going to be part of his strategy to convince Adam and Eve that they can do the same. That they can seize control from this tyrannical God who's holding back from them. I hope that makes sense. You all with me? Okay. So, how he's going to do this is mock God. He's going to undermine his authority. He's going to twist his commands to make it seem like God is this vengeful tyrant. So, when Satan speaks in the original Hebrew, he uses the impersonal word for God, Elohim. Now, if you remember, chapter 1 uses Elohim. Chapter 2 uses Yahweh Elohim, the covenantal name for God. But it's important here that Satan uses Elohim and not Yahweh Elohim for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's the devil. It's Satan. He can't utter the covenantal name. It's impossible to him in his state of sin and you know, viciousness and all, and all the rest of it. But he's also saying that because he is presenting God to them, not in the covenantal way, not as a loving God, but as this distant, transcendental God uh, who is distant from them, who has no, no desire to be with them at all. So that's the kind of God that he depicts to Adam and Eve. Distant, separate, all-powerful, holding back from you. Not Yahweh, not the, not the God who loves you, who has get, made a covenant with you, who brings you to the Sabbath day of rest and intimacy. Not that God, but the distant God, okay? Then he, he casts the command in this negative light. Did God say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? You, you can kind of see how he's depicting God as this, this God who's holding back, right? You can't eat of any tree. Now, God did not say that. God said you can eat of every tree except for one tree in the midst of the garden. Everything. And then Satan twists everything into a negative light. You can't eat from any tree. How horrible is that, Eve, that you can't do this? Again, she's called Eve later on, but nevertheless, we'll call her Eve still in this story. So 
She says, well, no, we can eat of any of the trees, but we can't eat of that tree, nor shall we touch it lest we die. You can almost sense that she's falling into his trap. Like, I kind of see it as petulance. We can't even touch the tree, right? All right, so, but God never said any of that. Like, it's an exaggeration of the command. God said, don't eat of it, okay? And that was it. But now they're like, well, we can't even touch it. We can't even look at it. You know, we can't even smell it. You know, whatever it might be, it's the complete exaggeration of God's command in this sort of petulant way, okay? This exagger- exaggerated negative way. All right, so she kind of falls into the trap. And this is where Satan really lays down the gauntlet. He says, you will not die. Because she says, you know, if, we, if you touch it, you're going to die. He says, you will not die. That's a pretty bold statement here, really contradicting what God said in chapter 2, verse 17. You will not die, but he knows. Then there, there's where the, the depiction is, the strategy is of, uh, to depict God as this, venge, not vengeful, but this tyrant, yeah, holding back the best. You won't die because he knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, lots to say here. Um, You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this is not knowledge in the sense of, like, I I know what is good and I know what is evil. There's more to it than that because the Hebrew has the implication of determining good and evil, calling the shots, saying this is right, this is wrong on your own. This kind of is like really the beginnings of moral relativism, right? Hey, What's right for me is right for me. What's wrong for you is wrong for you. And just got to be tolerant of each other because we have our own truth, okay? Moral relativism is rampant today. Benedict XVI called it the dictatorship of relativism. But it's been around since the very beginning. It's part of Satan's original attack, his original strategy. And so I got this great quote for you uh, from Pope John Paul II from your commentary I recommended. He says, tradition holds that Adam, having surrendered his trust in God, committed a sin of pride in wanting to be like God, knowing good and evil. His desire was not to discern the difference between good and evil, but to determine what was good and evil for himself independently of God. So this is Satan's strategy. You can call the shots. You can determine what's right and wrong. You can be the one in charge. You can be the one in control. And in reality, humanity as a whole, but Eve here in this story, and, and, and Adam right there with him, with her, I'll tell you in a moment. You're a creature. You can't say what's right and what's wrong and just say, this is it. God's moral, um, God's morality, God's moral truth, his holiness, his, his beauty governs all things. You can't change that as a creature. You know, the pot can't say, you know, to the potter, do, do it this way. You can't do it that. It just doesn't work. So, Anyways, it's determining good and evil, not just I know what's right and I know what's wrong. Okay, so that is what the strategy is. And then she says, oh, okay, well, tree is good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, ate of it, and then gave it to her husband. Now, this is kind of a a nuanced explanation of what the sin is and how it really builds up to ultimately pride. Now, there are three things that she recognizes. The, the, The fruit is good for food. It was a delight to the eyes and desired to make one wise. This is what's known as the triple concupiscence. Concupiscence is a million dollar word. It simply means the inclination to sin. And we all experience this inclination to sin, but it's really threefold. And John tells us in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 16, here in your notes, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, this threefold inclination to sin is what he's talking about. Now, when it says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, think of it more as desires, right? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. The lust of the flesh 
or the desires of the flesh, is really an inordinate desire for bodily pleasures of any kind. You can fill in the blank, but it's an inordinate desire. And you can have ordered desires for bodily pleasures that are virtuous and, and um, that don't go overboard, um, but an inordinate desire for bodily pleasures, that's known as the lust of the flesh. That's when she recognizes, oh, it's good for food. I, I got to eat that. I can eat of all the other trees, but I got to eat that one. That's going to be good to eat. Okay, it's going to be delicious and juicy and all the rest of it. Okay. And then the lust of the eyes or the desire of the eyes, John says, is this covetousness and really an inordinate desire for earthly goods. Again, you can have ordered desires for earthly goods because we need money and clothes and food. Okay. But a disordered, inordinate desire becomes a sin. It's the lust of the eyes where we got to have more, 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 more beyond what's rational, beyond what's reasonable. We just have to hoard it and keep it and just stockpile it all. Okay. All right. This is when she says, oh, it's a delight to the eyes. I got I to gotta possess it. I got to covet it. It's, it's not for me, but I want it. And then finally, where the rubber <laughs> meets the road here is the pride of life. All right. This is where she is really pride of life is the self-assertion, all right? Uh, putting yourself before God and above God. That's where it breaks the camel's back because she said the fruit would make them wise, right? That's that self-determination. And it really builds upon each other. You know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, like I want it, it looks good, I'm gonna eat it, it's gonna be delicious. All right, I don't care what God said. I don't care what's right and wrong. I'm gonna determine what's right and wrong. I'm gonna take it. So really the pride of life is the one that just tumbles over the whole thing. And that's where they make their sin because they've got to have the fruit and they, they covet it and they got to have it. They got to eat it, she says. Okay. So it really builds up. And this is what the whole manipulation was all about. So their eyes are open. They realize they were naked. They're ashamed. They clothe themselves with these fig leaves, which incidentally fig leaves, I don't know this from personal experience, but apparently they're pretty, um, itchy, right? So it's, when they cover themselves with fig leaves, it's like the penance starts immediately, okay? Putting fig leaves all over your, your naked body is probably not a good thing. Well, in any case, um, every, I mean, the die is cast, all right? Satan manipulated the truth. He says, you will not die, but they're not dead. Well, they died spiritually, and now death has entered into the world. Their eyes are indeed are open, and they're like God in a certain sense, knowing good and evil, but it's a disordered way. Now they kind of, they've, tried, they've made the attempt to say what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false on their own apart from God. And that's this disordered false knowledge that you can't do that against God. And it's all very ironic because if you remember from our discussion before, they were like God already. They were made in his image and likeness by gift, by grace. And this is a great huge theme in scripture, by the way. God always wants to give us more than we could ever imagine. His grace and his gifts and his blessings are tremendous. We just simply have to wait for the blessing. God desires to give us goodness, but often we grasp at the blessing. We take the blessing from him because we're impatient or we're selfish or prideful or whatever it is. So God already made them in his image and likeness. And now Satan is saying, you can be like God knowing good and evil, but not according to his design, not according to gift and not according to grace, but according to you grasping at that likeness, which of course it all explodes in their faces. So it's a sad irony, a tragedy, an ironic tragedy that they're trying to seize and grasp at something that is not owed to them in any way, shape or form as creatures, but yet God wants to give them his own likeness anyway. So this is the destruction here. Now, 
Let's now talk about Adam's guilt, because Adam was certainly guilty. We said last week that he was created from the dirt of the ground. He's the first dirt bag of human history. But we can see it's true because he was there the entire time, standing there like a chump, doing absolutely nothing. And let's look here at the Hebrew as he's failing to shamar the garden. I am Dr. Nick. Thank you so much for watching this clip. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did and you want to access the entire lesson and the entire course, come visit us over at scriptureandtradition.com and join our community of students. You'll be able to access all of my courses in the audio library. Plus, you'll be able to access my live courses whenever I teach a new topic on scripture or the Catholic faith. God bless you.